Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. These are the new Digital Wildcatters podcasting studios. We got all this cool equipment and stuff. We got this great table. This is I went to my girls last week. Er, blah, blah. Er, blah, blah. All right, recording. So I went to my girls a couple of months ago and said, hey, what are we going to do for spring break? And in a, in a first, Sarah and Kelly both blurted out the same answer. I want to go to Paris. So you know my favorite saying, no two words have gotten me in more trouble in my life, but here goes. I'm in. I recorded some serious thoughts about Paris. It's part travel guide. That, 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 that. Hold on. Look, I dropped it only as a video. And so if you're on Apple, take a watch on it instead of just listening. I'm going to screw this up again, but here, we, I'm going to screw this up again, but here, we'll just keep rolling. Okay. I'm dropping this as a video only podcast. So if you're on Apple, watch it instead of just listening. Go to YouTube, check it out. A lot of great photos in there, a lot of great stuff. There's also a little humor in there, you know me. I, 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 So it took about 19 hours from leaving Richmond, Texas until I was laying down in my bed in Paris. And of course I couldn't sleep, so the TV came on. So here we are at the Moxie Hotel. There are only two TV channels that speak English. All the rest are in French. French sounds amazing, but I don't understand a word they say. But one of the channels is BBC Europe. I watched a debate this morning between a left and a right member of the European Parliament, and it struck me two things that are unique about the American experience versus Europe. One, except for early days with the British, we've never had an occupier. So we never had the infrastructure built that an occupier builds in order to maintain control. That's interesting to me. Uh, there were remnants of discussions of Nazi Germany, Roman kind of They've had this history of building infrastructure to maintain the population, and there are vestiges of that in their political discourse today. The other thing I found really interesting and unique about the American experience is we always had room to get the fuck out. I mean, if you think about it, you didn't like it in New York, what was going on? Hell, go to wild Texas or go to Oklahoma or go panhandle in California. And for the most part, as you moved west, you were left alone. I mean, there wasn't a lot of government to deal with you. The sheriff in town, if he was a benevolent guy, you were fine. Anyway, those two experiences have not happened in Europe. And so it came out as listening to that debate. And it was really interesting. I don't think I'd thought through that before. President Barack Obama in Normandy for the 65th anniversary of the D-Day invasion said so much of the progress that would define the 20th century on both sides of the Atlantic came down to the battle for a slice of beach only six miles long and two miles wide. That is a 90-foot cliff that when the Allies landed, they had to scale up and the Germans were defending. They had a bunker right up there. 
so they scaled up that cliff, getting shot at the whole time, took that bunker, captured this area, and went to liberate the rest of Europe. You know, we talk a lot about servant leadership. We read leadership books that say things like, a great leader doesn't ask anything out of his employees that he or she wouldn't do themselves. I just got done walking through the D-Day Museum here at Utah Beach. This is the beach, one of the five landing spots for the Allies on D-Day. And what was so amazing, sitting there reading each of those stories about each one of those leaders, they all came with the first wave. None of the leaders, all the leaders were supposed to come with the second or third wave, let the guys get there, establish a beachhead, let them, allow them to get control. None of the leaders did that. They all came on the first wave, including Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr., the former president's son, who despite the fact he walked with a cane, he was supposed to come with the third wave in, went in with the first wave, was instrumental here on the ground, making decisions um, that led to the success of the D-Day invasion. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. General Dwight Eisenhower wrote those words for a speech he planned to give if the D-Day invasion had failed. But as author Stephen Ambrose wrote, at the core, the American citizen soldiers knew the difference between right and wrong, and they didn't want to live in a world in which wrong prevailed. So they fought and won, and we, all of us, living and yet to be born, must be forever profoundly grateful. episode of Digital Wildcatters Cribs. Back in the day, the king used to live wherever the hunting was good. So Louis Thirteenth actually built a hunting lodge and then a small chateau out at Versailles. It was Louis XIV who loved it out there and in multiple stages built the palace that we know today. Okay, this is totally where we're having the next Digital Wildcatters pizza party. Okay, who's down for energy tech night here? Yeah, that's the ceiling. All right, this is Louis XIV's master bedroom. If you can't get laid in here. Louis XIV once proclaimed, I am the state, and only the hall of mirrors is worthy of capturing that ego. 240 feet long, 35 feet across, 40-foot ceilings, over 350 mirrors on one side, and the most beautiful views of the Versailles Gardens on the other. This is the Apollo room. Why do I think Apollo actually has one of these in New York?
Hey everybody, I have a new name. It's no longer Chuck, Charlemagne. You know, I could totally get used to a place like this. May build me one of these in Richmond. As cool as Versailles was, trust me, I felt like I was in a rap video when I was there. My daughter, Sarah, made the best point. We were walking around, looking around, and she kind of had this look of disgust on her face. I go, what's going on? She said, no wonder the peasants revolted. One of the things I've noticed about the French bathrooms is like, you know, here's a bathroom, right? Glass window right there in the door so that anybody can see in. And like the cleaning ladies in the men, they'll just walk into the men's bathroom when you're using it and start cleaning. You know, I get it. Hey, whatever. Just an interesting observation. For about a two and a half week period there in freshman year, I thought Jim Morrison was the single coolest person that had ever lived. Break on through, light my fire. I was mesmerized by the doors. And then I started reading some of Jim Morrison's poetry. I think this dude's being a little over dramatic for a rock star. And then I found out Robbie Krieger, the guitar player, is actually the one that wrote all the songs I like. He's the one that wrote the song, Light My Fire, Touch Me. So anyway, I think I was a Robbie Krieger fan, not a Jim Morrison fan. But anyway, it's cool to see his grave. With apologies to the Mona Lisa and the Venus de Milo, the star of the Louvre is the Louvre. It's massive, it's gorgeous. We read someplace that if you spent one minute looking at each piece of art, eight hours a day, seven days a week, it'd take you more than three months to see every piece in there. By the way, the French give good art. They really do. The story behind the winged victory of Samothrace is pretty cool. First discovered in 1863, it seems like they find a new piece to it every 25 years. People always talk about how small the Mona Lisa is. I thought it was bigger than they made it out to be. When you take this pic with the Mona Lisa, you're staring at the wedding of Cana, the most major wine flex in history. While a cool piece of sculpture, the Venus de Milo actually benefited greatly from a French propaganda campaign. You see, in 1820, the French were reeling because they had had to give back all the artwork that Napoleon had plundered from the rest of the Europe. So when they discovered the Venus de Milo, they placed it at the top of the stairs, created a national campaign, and talked about it being the greatest piece of sculpture in the world. I must say that the Louvre has a little different vibe than its neighbor to the north. The British Museum screams, hey dude, we conquered you, we stole your shit, now pay us 47 pounds to see it. 